1: 18+. As we embark on our final episode for 2023, we wanted to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude for your unwavering support and listenership throughout this year. Your commitment means the world to us, and we are truly grateful to have you on this journey through true crime cases with Lainey. After this episode, we'll be taking a brief break to recharge and prepare for an exciting new year of captivating content. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 3rd, 2024 ready to dive into more intriguing true crime cases with our characteristic focus on ethics and advocacy. But during this break, we won't leave you hanging. We'll be dropping feed drops or episodes from some of our friends, introducing you to fresh and engaging content to keep you entertained. We encourage you to explore these new shows and perhaps discover some hidden gems. In the meantime, don't forget to check out my other podcast, It's Haunted What Now?, and the upcoming Tracing Darkness, which is still set to release every Thursday. Your support on platforms like Patreon and Apple subscriptions ensures we can continue bringing you compelling stories with a dedication to ethical storytelling and advocacy. As the year comes to a close, we want to extend warm wishes for a peaceful and joyful holiday season. As we look ahead to 2024, our commitment to ethical storytelling and advocacy in the true crime space remains unwavering. We're excited about the future and can't wait to share more compelling stories with you. And speaking of the future, a fantastic gift idea for yourself or the true crime enthusiast in your life is a ticket to the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, happening July 12th through the 14th, 2024, in Denver, Colorado. You can meet me and other true crime podcasters and paranormal creators by going to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to learn more. Again, thank you for being a vital part of our true crime community. We can't wait to reconnect with you in the new year. We wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. In our recent episodes, we've explored deeply troubling instances involving crimes committed against several children. These are cases that demanded our attention, ensuring the narratives of the victims reach the ears of our listeners. However, we are fully aware of these stories' emotional toll on both our audience and the dedicated team working behind the scenes. We've chosen a slightly different path as we approach the final episode of 2023. Today's cases will be less emotionally intense, offering a reprieve as we transition into the festive season and the new year with a lighter spirit. We will focus on incidents where, despite criminal actions, no physical harm befell anyone. Those peculiar situations that prompt disbelief and make you question their authenticity. Yet, sadly, these scenarios were undeniably real, underscoring the ongoing need for justice. So, kick back, relax, and create a cozy atmosphere for yourself. Today's stories may have a surreal quality that prompts you to say, No way, this can't be real. However, the truth is, it was indeed very real. Now, let's delve into these captivating cases, knowing that justice still needed to be served. Okay, on to the show. The National Health Service, or NHS, stands as a pinnacle achievement in the UK. Albeit imperfect and often underfunded, it is a public health system dedicated to providing medical attention to everyone, regardless of their background or financial standing. This ensures that individuals are not more burdened by concerns over hospital fees than their health issues. However, the benevolence of the NHS system doesn't necessarily extend to every individual within its ranks. Consider a man named Simon Bramhall, a consultant surgeon at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, England, during the mid-2000s. Specializing in internal organ transplants, particularly involving the liver, spleen, and pancreas, Bramhall earned a reputation as a respected and competent member of the medical community. Bramhall even made the news in November of 2010 due to an operation he carried out using a liver that had suffered a plane crash during its transportation. The plane had been carrying the organ from Belfast to Birmingham when foggy conditions caused it to crash land, injuring both of the pilots but leaving the liver unscathed. At the time, Bramhall was interviewed about the operation that followed, calling the survival of the liver amazing and noting that without it, the patient would have certainly died. This unnamed patient steadily recovered, as did both pilots from the plane. It made for a great feel-good story, with the plane crash injecting a smidge of adrenaline but allowing everyone to escape and survive, and giving an experienced and hard-working surgeon a chance to get five minutes of fame. This almost makes it even more unbelievable when we find out what Bramhall did only three years after this incident. At the age of 48 and after 12 years of service at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Bramhall, known for countless successful surgeries, was involved in two operations that deviated from standard procedures. In the realm of transplants, the argon beam coagulator, a heat laser, is commonly used to cauterize internal organs and outlined surgical plans by leaving temporary marks. Though fading over a few weeks, these marks eventually disappear without harming the organ. In February 2013, the initial operation unfolded without causing any concern. However, it was during the second operation in August of the same year that a nurse inquiring about marks left by the argan beam during a liver biopsy performed by Bramhall discovered something unusual. With a casual motion, Bramhall demonstrated how he could create marks on the liver before completing the procedure. Unnoticed by the nurse, a subtle detail emerged in a subsequent surgery a mere week later. Regrettably, the transplanted liver in this specific patient began to fail shortly after, not due to any fault of Bramhall's, but because the liver was already compromised before the transplant. Consequently, the patient faced another urgent surgery, this time conducted by a different surgeon who noticed an anomaly during the procedure. The marks on the liver, approximately 4 centimeters in height, appeared deliberately crafted, unlike the typical sketch maps familiar to the surgeon. Alarmed by this deviation, the surgeon photographed the marks on a mobile phone before completing the operation. The second surgeon's suspicions were validated upon closer examination, The marks bore a resemblance to the letters S.B., signifying the initials of the original surgeon, Simon Bramhall. He had, in an unprecedented act, marked his patient's internal organ during the transplant process. The second surgeon promptly reported this discovery to the board, leading to Bramhall's immediate suspension pending an internal disciplinary investigation. Subsequently, Bramhall resigned from his position at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in May of the following year. At some point, he admitted to another instance of branding that occurred in February 2013. Both victims maintained court-protected anonymity. When the story initially surfaced in the media, Bramhall informed the BBC that he had made a mistake and expressed remorse for his actions. Later, he acknowledged that branding the patients was naive and foolhardy, admitting that while he knew it wouldn't harm them, it was still inappropriate. His explanation centered around the physically and mentally demanding nature of the preceding operations, describing the initials as a way to alleviate stress after such significant exertion. In December 2017, the Wheels of Justice finally brought Simon Bramhall to Birmingham's Crown Court. To answer for the branding incidents. At this time, he was again employed by the NHS in a smaller capacity in Herefordshire, England's West Midlands. Bramhall refuted the initial charges of assault, occasioning actual bodily harm, opting instead to plead guilty to two counts of assault by beating in collaboration with the prosecution. Throughout the hearing, it was emphasized that Bramhall did not inflict physical harm or damage to patients' organs during the procedures. He successfully performed the operations to a high standard. The crux of the matter, as articulated by prosecutor Tony Badenock, was Bramhall's act of burning his initials onto the surface of a newly transplanted liver, without any medical or clinical justification, and, most importantly, without the patient's consent. This constituted a breach of trust and an abuse of power over anesthetized and unconscious individuals. One victim suffered significant emotional harm upon discovering the violation during her vulnerable state. In January 2018, Bramhall received a £10,000 fine for these assaults and a 120 hour unpaid community work sentence over the next 12 months. The judge acknowledged the demanding nature of the operations conceding that fatigue and stress might have affected Bramhall's judgment. However, he characterized the conduct as professional arrogance of such magnitude that it strayed into criminal behavior. For one victim, the sentence fell short of justice. Initially dismissing the story as too far-fetched, she realized she was one of Bramhall's patients when Queen Elizabeth Hospital confirmed her involvement. The revelation deeply affected her, as she abhorred the idea of tattoos, let alone an unauthorized branding. Describing the horror of seeing her body with the initials SB on her liver, she likened her emotional distress to what she imagined a rape victim might feel after an assault. Due to his actions, Bramhall had his medical license suspended and eventually revoked by the General Medical Council. They justified this move by stating that a mere suspicion did not sufficiently reassure the public that their best interests were protected. It is perplexing that this did not occur immediately after Bramhall's admission to the brandings in 2013 and 2014, but there may have been reasons behind the decision. You might wonder whether Simon Bramhall genuinely feels remorse for his actions. In my view, it appears that he does not. This lack of regret is perhaps influenced by Bramhall's collaboration with Finn Murphy, and co-authoring a series of medical thriller novels. Notably, one of these novels, The Letterman, revolves around a surgeon who inscribes his initials on a donor's liver during a life-saving transplant. Interestingly, this story is currently unavailable for purchase, although other works in the series are accessible. I'm sure that is just pure coincidence. Understanding the thought process of individuals like Bram Hall is a challenge. Consider dedicating decades of your life to a medical career, navigating the associated stress and challenges, only to engage in an overtly inappropriate act that jeopardizes everything you've worked to achieve. I sincerely hope that the two patients affected have not only recovered from the physical conditions that led them to the operating theater, but also managed to overcome the mental strain and pain Inflicted by this man's arrogance Shifting our focus to our next case, we delve into the realm of the deep web with a narrative centered on a marketplace known as the Silk Road that emerged in 2011. Drawing its name from the ancient trading network that spanned Asia and Europe, this modern Silk Road operated as a clandestine website designed to facilitate the sale of drugs, ultimately yielding substantial profits for its owner. Reports indicate that a staggering 20% of drug consumers in the U.S. had obtained substances through the Silk Road, contributing to over $1.2 billion in revenue for the site within less than three years. Beyond narcotics, the Silk Road expanded its offerings over time, encompassing categories such as firearms, fake IDs, hacking tutorials, and even services for hire, including murder. While we acknowledge that the illicit trafficking of drugs and other illegal goods and services is by no means a victimless crime, our focus isn't on the Silk Road itself. Instead, we turn our attention to its creator, Russ Ulbricht. Remarkably adept at building a multi-million dollar empire, Ulbricht displayed a striking lack of competence in navigating the intricacies of the dark web and its transactions. For those intrigued by the broader Silk Road narrative, I highly recommend watching Barely Sociable's YouTube documentary, The Dark Side of the Silk Road. This podcast episode, however, zeroes in on a specific aspect of the story, recognizing the complexity and depth of the Silk Road saga, making it impractical to cover it in its entirety within the confines of this single episode. At the age of 27, Russ Ulbricht initiated the Silk Road under the pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts, adopting the name from the 1987 fantasy film The Princess Bride. The title of Dread Pirate Roberts was transferable or inheritable in the movie, suggesting multiple individuals could operate under the same account. Ulbricht believed this provided him with plausible deniability, exemplified when he claimed to have initially created the Silk Road, but had since sold it, absolving himself of responsibility for subsequent activities on the platform. The importance of anonymity extended beyond Ulbricht shielding himself. It was crucial for users vending and purchasing on the Silk Road to feel their identities were safeguarded. The survival of the Silk Road depended on users trusting that their details would not be exposed, preventing authorities from intervening in their transactions. Ulbricht needed to maintain this trust to sustain the platform for his financial gain. By early 2013, the Silk Road faced numerous hacking threats, creating an atmosphere of uncertainty. In March 2013, a user named Friendly Chemist urgently sought the attention of Dread Pirate Roberts, who was revealed to be Ulbricht. The situation escalated as Friendly Chemist disclosed being a supplier to another Silk Road account Lucy Drop, who had not only scammed customers, but had also disappeared without reimbursing Friendly Chemist for around $700,000 worth of product. Facing threats from his suppliers, the Hells Angels, Friendly Chemist demanded $500,000 from Ulbricht or threatened to expose personal information of Silk Road users, especially targeting major vendors. This wasn't an idle threat. Friendly Chemist provided personal data samples, Confirming his ability to dismantle Ulbricht's empire. Unwilling to succumb to blackmail, Ulbricht requested to be connected with the Hell's Angel suppliers to resolve the issue. Here, a twist in the narrative unfolded. A user named Real Lucy Drop entered the scene, claiming to have been in jail while his partner scammed people. Without questioning this dubious turn of events, Ulbricht engaged in a private conversation with Real Lucy Drop seeking information on the blackmailer's real-life identity and address. Despite potential risks to his own life and business, Real Lucy Drop eventually provided some information. However, the complexities of the situation continued to intensify. Soon after, a new user named Red and White, colors associated with the Hells Angels, reached out to Ulbricht. Their introductory message, We are the people friendly chemist owes money to, should have raised red flags for Ulbricht, but he took their words at face value. Instead, he offered them a place to sell on the Silk Road to recoup losses and potentially profit from the venture. Red and White expressed interest, but had a condition. Ulbricht must hand over Friendly Chemist. Ulbricht agreed, referring to Friendly Chemist as a liability and suggesting he wouldn't mind if he was executed. He provided his identifying information and awaited an address from real Lucy Drop. However, friendly chemists continued to blackmail Ulbricht, prompting him to snap. In a subsequent message, Ulbricht politely requested Red and White's services as hitmen, saying, quote, I would like to put a bounty on his head if it's not too much trouble for you. Red and White informed him that the hit would cost between $150,000 and $300,000. Despite an unsuccessful attempt to haggle down the price, with Ulbricht citing a previous hit costing $80,000, Red and White stood firm, and Ulbricht paid them $150,000 in Bitcoin. Meanwhile, Real Lucy Drop reluctantly provided Ulbricht with friendly chemist's approximate address and other details. Friendly chemist Blake Krokoff was 34 years old and from British Columbia with a wife and three children. Ulbricht promptly shared this information with Red and White. With the final confirmation, Ulbricht requested proof of the hit. He instructed Red and White to take a photo of the victim, deceased, alongside a piece of paper displaying a series of random numbers chosen by Ulbricht himself. Red and White complied, carrying out the job that same night. Along with the proof, they supplied Ulbricht with yet more information. They said that before Friendly Chemist expired, he told them about another Silk Road user who had helped with the blackmail plot. This man, Tony 76, was also located in British Columbia. After a short back-and-forth about what to do next, Ulbricht sent Red and White another 500000 in Bitcoin so that Tony 76 alongside his three roommates, could also be taken care of. And with that, by April 15, 2013, all of Ulbricht's blackmailing problems were over. He could rest easy on the throne he had built from facilitating illegal exchanges, safe at home, with his computer. That is, until just under six months later, when the FBI apprehended Russ Ulbricht in a San Francisco library on October 1, 2013. They staged a disturbance with undercover officers, and in the ensuing chaos, they were able to lure Ulbricht from his laptop and arrest him. At the same time, they seized the laptop as it was still open, unlocked, and logged into Silk Road. Most notably, an administration panel that gave the site owner access to customers needing assistance and a page that was literally titled, Mastermind. Was the laptop a gold mine or Bitcoin mine for the FBI? First, to validate the pun, that Bitcoin wallet contained an enormous amount of Bitcoin. Sources differ over the exact amount, with a conservative estimate of around 144,000 Bitcoins, which was worth over $1.8 million at the time. A more outrageous amount proposed was worth as much as $30 million, with the potential of even more being stored across other accounts. Access to this wallet also enabled experts to trace thousands of transactions between Ulbricht and the Silk Road. Also contained on the laptop was a file labeled Emergency. It noted his entire escape plan if someone became aware of his identity. Rolling Stone said this plan was as follows. Encrypt and backup important files on the laptop to a memory stick. Destroy laptop. Destroy the phone. Hide memory stick. Get a new laptop. Go to end of train. Find place to live on Craigslist for cash. Create new identity. Name. Backstory. To add insult to injury for Ulbrecht, the FBI had been able to track him down largely due to his incompetence. In the earliest days of the Silk Road, he had left a breadcrumb trail that led the FBI right back to its true identity. Because the Silk Road itself was on the deep web, it was incredibly difficult to trace any information about it there. But investigators knew there had to be some mention of it on the regular web to attract its initial user base. So, the FBI googled it. The earliest mention of the Silk Road in reference to drug trafficking on the internet came from a user named Altoid on the website that discussed hallucinogens such as magic mushrooms. Altoid appeared to be advertising the website to the users of this website, and for some reason, it read like self-promotion. Altoid continued to pop up on other sites from that point, subtly influencing those around him to head to Silk Road. One site he appeared on was a Bitcoin forum, and when investigators checked Altoid's other posts on the forum, they found that he had listed his email address, rossolbrecht at gmail.com. Embarrassing, right? Probably not as embarrassing as when, in July 2013, agents from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection showed up at his door to ask questions about nine fake IDs they had intercepted, all with different details, but all with Ross Ulbricht's face on them. He was so embarrassed about that incident that he abruptly moved home soon after. It's also worth mentioning that according to an early Dread Pirate Roberts post, Ulbricht was using fake IDs to rent servers for the Silk Road. If that is what these IDs were for, he was using fake IDs with his real face on them and giving copies of them to the companies who hosted the servers. I wouldn't call that a particularly clever move. Ulbricht also publicly asked for advice about creating deep websites using accounts that featured his real name and face on multiple occasions. One of these advice posts even included computer coding, which, compared with the code used to run Silk Road, showed identical across several lines. In early 2015, Ulbricht went to trial for seven counts. These included selling narcotics and money laundering, as well as maintaining an ongoing criminal enterprise which the Guardian states is usually only reserved for the biggest of the big mob kingpins. Although these charges did not include soliciting murder for hire due to lack of evidence, the prosecution was permitted to mention it in their findings. After four weeks of trial, he was convicted on all counts, and on May 29, 2015, Ross Ulbricht was sentenced to a combined term of life in prison. This consisted of five sentences to be served concurrently, Two for life, one for 20 years, one for 15, and one for five. He was denied parole at every opportunity. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, how was there not enough evidence to charge him with soliciting murder for hire? And what about the first hit Ulbricht ordered, the $80,000 one? Well, to answer your first question, that's because there is no proof that any of these people actually existed. Canadian authorities had no records whatsoever of homicides whose victims matched the details given about Friendly Chemist, nor Tony 76 and his roommates. Also, the police couldn't even find any records of anyone with the vendor's names ever living in the given areas of British Columbia. Putting it bluntly, it seems incredibly likely that Albrecht had fallen for a scam that cost him more than half a million dollars. In late 2018, Canadian police believe they had found the person behind Red White and Lucy Drop accounts. Two Bitcoin accounts were used for transactions with Red and White and another account named Marijuana Is My Muse, and these accounts were opened by a man named James Ellingson. He had used his own email address, driver's license, address, and utility bill to confirm his identity to register. On analysis, Ellingson's Gmail account also contains records of drug transactions that matched data from the Silk Road. One further confirmation of Red and White's identity came from photos from Ulbricht's laptop. Some of these photos contained packages of drugs and other transactional evidence, while one photo even included Red and White's face. When compared to Ellingson's driver's license, authorities concluded the images matched. Ellingson had been a regular vendor on Silk Road and had apparently made $2 million in his time there. He had not been convicted of any crimes since 2007, and none of his previous criminal histories even hinted at him taking part in legitimate murder-for-hire schemes. On May 11, 2023, an indictment was unsealed, revealing that Ellingson was charged with recounts of trafficking and money laundering. If extradited to the U.S., he could face up to life in prison for his deeds. Okay, so that's five out of six hits accounted for. What about the earliest one, which I've been annoyingly coy about? Well, you're not going to believe this. The first target Ulbricht had ever put out a hit on was actually a real person, and he was involved in the Silk Road. In fact, he was one of the only people Ulbricht could trust on the website. He had adopted it early and often offered medical and harm reduction advice to keep consumers safe with information that stemmed from an unfinished nursing degree. This man, Curtis Green, was the first person Olbricht added to his staff as a moderator when the Silk Road started to get too big for him. Green was tasked with brokering deals with new sellers, including one involving a large amount of cocaine. Following a huge sale worth twenty seven thousand, Ulbricht even contacted Green to congratulate him on his success. But this success was short lived. On January 17, 2013, Green's kilo of cocaine arrived, in the hands of an undercover agent disguised as a postal worker, who arrested him on the spot. Not wanting to lose a promising new business prospect, Ulbricht contacted the cocaine seller as soon as he found out about the arrest. During this conversation, it was clear he saw Green as a liability since he had access to the Silk Road's inner workings before his arrest. There was no telling what kind of details he could spill to the police. Ulbricht even alleged that Green had stolen from several vendors, which put Ulbricht out of pocket to pay them back. At some point, an offer was made. The seller could send people over to threaten Green and ensure he wasn't telling anyone anything. Ulbricht encouraged this and then escalated the situation the very next day. He wanted him executed, not just tortured. He offered $80,000 for the service, half up front, half on receipt of proof. The seller agreed to these terms and proceeded to send photos of Green being tortured during the process. Then, on February 21st, Ulbricht received a photo as proof of death. This was only a matter of weeks before the incident involving Friendly Chemist and Red and White began. And... Ulbricht had no idea that the entire arrest torture, and execution had been staged by agents from the DEA, or the Drug Enforcement Administration. The cocaine seller he was in contact with was a DEA agent, and the blood-soaked corpse featured in the photograph was just a man lying on the ground, covered in soup. Green was very much alive and had cooperated with authorities immediately following his arrest. In January 2016, Green was sentenced to time served for conspiracy to distribute cocaine and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute cocaine. It is not entirely clear what the DEA agents hoped to achieve through this operation. However, it was later revealed that the Bitcoin Ulbricht had accused Green of stealing before ordering the hit had, in fact, been stolen. Not by Green or the DEA, but by a Secret Service agent using Green's account. Yes really. He was later charged with money laundering and obstruction of justice. And as the final clown tumbled out of the clown car, so did the DEA agent. As we reach the end of this circus of a case, I do want to remind you all that Ulbricht completely believed that the hits he was taking out were real. He thought the people on the other end of the screen were real and he wanted them dead. He sent huge amounts of money to shady individuals with the intent of ending the lives of six different people. He does not deserve any benefits of the doubt that may come from, but none of this was real. The federal prosecutor put it during closing arguments. Think goodness that this man's power trip was stopped before he managed to connect with a true hitman through his criminal website. And of course, this does nothing to negate the horrors experienced by the victims of Silk Road as a whole. There is no telling how many people suffered and lost their lives due to the drug-trafficking empire that Ulbricht had made so easy to get sucked into. I have one last tiny little case for us to round off this episode, partially because my researcher and production assistant, Jesse, insisted, and partially because in this case, nobody truly got hurt. In 2014 a man entered a busy Ladbrokes betting shop in Glasgow. He was carrying a suspicious object, something long and cylindrical but unidentifiable as concealed with a sock. He demanded that an employee give him cash and grew irate when she refused to do so. Or perhaps he would have if he hadn't immediately been tackled to the ground by an off-duty police officer, who happened to have been in the shop at the time. The man was 28-year-old plumber, Gary Ruff, who admitted to a charge of assault with intent to rob. When interviewed by police, Ruff reportedly said, It was a dare. Am I getting to jail for this? His defense lawyer, Tony Graham, said Ruff was a man who had no outstanding issues that would need him to seek financial gain from a robbery. However, he added that his client could not explain why he had attempted to rob the betting shop. Ruff was subsequently jailed for 40 months for this failed robbery. Oh, and the concealed object? It was a cucumber wrapped in a black sock. And that's a wrap for this episode. We've taken you on a wild ride through surgical branding, the Silk Road roller coaster, and the cucumber caper of Gary Ruff. I mean, the jokes write themselves at this point. To all of you amazing listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us on this crime-filled episode. We hope your holiday season is as bright and cheerful as a Christmas tree in Times Square, or as crisp and refreshing as a cucumber straight out of the fridge. Okay, okay, I'm done. Stay safe, spread the joy, and all that jazz. Happy holidays. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at True Crime Underscore Cases, Facebook at Facebook.com slash True Crime Cases W. Lainey, and Instagram at True Crime cases with Laney. Our website is True Podcast dot com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laney Hobbs BO or on TikTok at Laney Hobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of the Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at the